0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk money to me. Hello and
1: welcome to Talk Money to Me. I'm Candice Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Talk Money To Me.
2: Now, drumroll Felicity, we are so excited to be bringing you, our listeners, our conversation with a friend of Talk Money To Me, Mr. Jack Cowan, who in fact founded Hungry Jacks and has no doubt been one of the most influential business persons within the quick service restaurant industry, probably globally. I'm going to say that. absolutely. And it was such a privilege, wasn't it, Felicity, to sit down with Jack. Jack in person at his office in Sydney to really understand his drive for business, how he used his natural sales skills to get ahead in life, where his entrepreneurial spirit came from, and to hear the origins and the backstory behind Hungry Jacks.
1: Now with Jack, we wind back the clock to the 1960s to hear how Jack first came to become preconditioned, as he calls it, to build his own career and turn two plus two into five. Now Jack puts his investment principles into such simple terms. So be prepared to hear a lot of great tips and insights. As Jack explains in his early days he was asking himself if he could take an idea and replant it somewhere else. He was referencing Burger King and KFC from North American Market where he grew up. Now you'll hear the origins and the first store Burger Baron was actually located in the CBD of Sydney and how Jack over the decades turned his original $10,000 investment from external parties into over $40 million in value.
2: Now, before we get into our conversation with Jack, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shoreham Partners, as always, today our discussion does not constitute as personal financial advice. As always, please go out and seek your own professional advice before you make any of your investment decisions. Alrighty, we are so excited to drop this episode, so let's get into our chat with the one and only Mr. Hungry Jack. Welcome, Jack, to Talk Money To Me. We're so excited to be chatting with you today in your wonderful office here in Sydney.
3: Well, thank you for the invitation. Um, Be interested in your questions and see where we go.
2: Yeah, we're super pumped to be sitting here, as we said. So I guess, Jack, there's so much to talk about, but I want to start off our conversation in the direction that not a lot of people know that you're originally from Canada. So can you take us back in time and share with us how you came to live in Australia and build a career here?
3: Yes, I'd be pleased to do that. I, um, as you say, I grew up in Canada, went to university there, um, had a brief flirtation as a professional athlete, uh, didn't see a future for that. Um, got into got into a sales job, but from the start wanted to get into my own business uh, and uh, I saw the benefits of, of doing that probably driven and an understanding later in life of an understanding as I was probably seeking independence uh, my father had worked his whole life for the Ford Motor Company and he started off as kind of a, 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 as a kind of production worker and he ended up in a very high executive position as as uh, Uh, running the engine division for the company worldwide. Engineers and PhDs and everything else, talking, working with a guy who had grade 10 education uh, from a family of 10 uh, in the Depression, but had a very strong work ethic, very good with people, and uh, had an interesting career. Uh, The Australian bit comes about because in... Uh, 1960, I'm in high school, and he gets sent for six months to Geelong, Australia, to build an engine plant in Geelong, which recently just closed when Ford kind of stopped manufacturing here. And uh, he was here for six months. The wives came for three weeks in the middle, but um, he was part of like a team of 20 Canadians that came to Geelong to build this plant. And when he came home, he said to me, if I was young again, I'd move to Australia. It's the land of the future. Um, You know, Asia, on the doorstep of Asia, Asia will continue to evolve and grow. So I was preconditioned to want to come to Australia. As I say, I kind of finished school and uh, have a job, doing well in sales, but had this kind of burning desire to, how do I get into my own business, which, as I say, I, I think I, the, the psychological aspect of this. My father working in a, for a big uh, multinational company was, you'd get a phone call, I want you to go to Australia, I want you to live in Brazil, which you did, I want you to live in Mexico. And so his life was kind of dictated by the big corporation. Uh, and I think as a kid, I said, I'd like to have more <laughs> independence in doing what I'd like to do rather than the corporation telling me I'm going to move somewhere and do this and that. I didn't realize that at the time, but later I'd say, okay, that's why I wanted to have this independence. So I was the only guy in our high school that knew where Australia was on the map because my old man had been there. And, uh, and so um, a couple friends that I've gone through high school with go and work for the American Kentucky Fried Chicken Company, and they get sent to Australia to do market research. And since I was the local Australian kid with the knowledge, they phone me up and say, you should come for a visit. So without a moment's hesitation, I'm on a plane. I fly to Los Angeles, Hawaii, Tahiti, Fiji, New Zealand, get to Sydney, wow. the reason I'm doing that was because I, I may never do this again, you know, so anyway, so make a long story short, these guys are doing the market research, I, uh, I spend a day at Bondi, and then I get involved in doing the market research with them, and I pay $1,000 for a deposit, this is 1968, I'm here for three weeks in Sydney, I pay a, a deposit that if and when the American company opens a store, and if it works... Then I have the right to have a franchise area. So I'm like 25 years old at this stage of the game. So I've got this deposit. The American company opens a store, does moderately well, but it looks like here's an opportunity to get into your own business. So, uh, but I I've got a mortgage. I had a six month old child. I've got you know I got the whole catastrophe of you know somebody trying to get you know but I didn't have any real money to be on. So I got 30 Canadians to lend me $10,000 each. And I give a little speech that says, if a 25-year-old kid comes into your office, wants to get into a business halfway around the world that he has no experience in, is you know, it's not going to pay you any interest on your money. He promises to give you the money back between the fifth and 10th year. You, uh, you get 1.5% equity in the business I had 65% they had 35% Um, what's the chances of you say stop wasting my time get out of my office and I've been recently asked if if somebody presented me today with that would I back them and the answer is (laughs) no so they did though. (laughs) Yeah. so thank thankfully there are people that were prepared to back me to on this adventure you know, and kind of back, it's kind of like probably a pre-runner to the venture capitalists of the, of the, of the world and uh, so I'm grateful that we've gradually bought the shares back over the years so that today like I own 98% of the business there's 2% left of original shareholders and those shareholders would be worth it. that $10,000 investment that they made back then was now worth 40 million plus you know, and that's at book value. That's the asset value.
2: That's got
1: to be one of the best return on investments I've ever had. Hundred percent. They're very happy that they backed you. Yeah. They must have seen something in you, though.
3: I think I, you know, I had done well as in say, when I went to university as a door-to-door salesman selling trees and shrubs and things like this, and I was able to buy. A, I paid my own way through university. The independent thing again, and uh, I had done well, and. Um, then when I got uh, it was a, I got a job when I finished university with an with an insurance company, selling insurance, which is the hardest thing in the world to sell because nobody wants to buy it.
1: It's true. <laughs> and true.
3: And uh, I had done extremely well at that. And so I think they said, if this guy is prepared to kind of sell his house, take his wife, kids, and move to Australia, he's got a chance. And also, which worked in my favor was in the late 60s, the McDonald's and the, all the KFC and all these in North America were doing really well and so it was kind of here's a new place no creativity i don't think i've got any creativity in me but it was here's a the the decision really was can you take an idea and replant it someplace else you know nine out of 10 new ideas generally don't work for whatever reason but i think there is a way to make money by being able to see an idea and then is there another place where you can plant that seed and have a similar result and that in my case that's what it was so anyway uh, you could
1: actually execute the idea. And you probably can sell ice to Eskimos, basically. Yeah. So they're like, absolutely.
3: Yeah. So, anyway, so, you know, we pack our bags, sell the house, put the furniture in my mother in law's basement. And she said, I, you know, she's very nervous about where I was taking her daughter halfway around the world. There's no place further away than Perth, Western Australia, where we moved to. That's where we ended up with this KFC business and opened a store. Then you opened two stores and built that business up to 60 odd stores and sold it and got in the hamburger business, the pizza business, food manufacturing, outside investments. So that's that's the history lesson. There you go.
1: That's fantastic. And I bet a lot of Australians are very happy about that because we do love Hungry Jacks. Now, we know that you're a very successful investor. Some have actually even called you the Warren Buffett of Australia. So we'd love to ask you- I think that's a
3: wild (laughs) overstatement.
1: Yes. I mean, it could be, but I don't think so. So we'd love to ask you about your investment process and philosophy. Do you have a team or do you make a lot of the investment decisions yourself?
3: Yes, we do have a team. And as time has gone along, you know, it has changed somewhat as to how uh, when you start a business, as I did, one of the key factors is, is focus. You know, bring in, put you put your energy focused on this. And every dollar, every hour, you know, kind of, it's it, it is somewhat obsessive when you start a, a new business and because, you know you know, and in the 70s when i'm kind of getting started interest rates in the banks went to 26 27% people forget this you know that but it was unbelievably difficult
1: yeah we have we've been lucky enough not to actually experience that i think in our adult life
3: no, you, so today you think how many businesses would survive if, if interest, you know, we talk about interest rates going from five to seven. You know, we'd say this is still very cheap money you yeah. know, to, to be able to do this. So um, so as I say, focus, focus, focus. Um, you know, make sure that, uh, that the business is, is getting established and growing. And I did that probably through the 80s and in 1987, I sold a third of the business to four Japanese companies because Japan at that stage of the game wanted to own the world, you know, quality, you remember, you know. And so they bought it and um, I became a director of, they had a similar business in Hawaii. Uh, but they put $40 million into the business in 1987 and that gave us a kick along but that was the only real outside equity that we've had from the very that original 300. 300. We bought the Japanese business back, shares back from them in the late 90s, and they did well in, on the transaction. But that that is again they wanted to bring the money back. A significant thing that um, happened, I guess, from an investment point of view, is in the early it was 1992 to be specific, um, I was approached by another Canadian who was in the television business who said, uh, you know, I want to buy Channel 10 out of out of receivership. And, you know, are you interested in participating? And I said, look, I don't know anything about the TV business, but this, this guy was quite su- successful. His name was Izzy Asper, very smart guy. So I put four and a half million dollars in in 1992 into buying the, with some others. You know, I was part of a kind of a syndicate of people that bought. He, as a, as a foreign Canadian, uh, could only own 15% equity, and so he had to get the other kind of balance of the ownership under the media laws owned by local people that hopefully would agree with him. He, he put up 57% of the money, but only had a smaller portion of the equity. But so you had to get friendly people of which I was one. Anyway, five years later, five years later, we sold that 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 interest because the company went public for seventy two million dollars, I think we got. So the four and a half million to seventy two. So I said, hey, there may be some other kind of opportunities that 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 we can get into outside the mainstream business, which has been my focus all along. That led to you know a couple a few years later uh, we bought into Stanbrook which was the world's largest cattle property, um, you know bigger than England and uh, bought it from the AMP. I had two other partners in that, and we we got in and out of that because one of the partners wanted to sell things off. We wanted to get into it as a business, and he bought us out. We made 40 million to $45 million on that transaction. Uh, Got into bridge climb about this time, people walking over over the Sydney Harbor Bridge. That was uh, Brett Blundy and I had a $6 million investment in that, and by the time um, the... Our license ran out twenty years later. We were making twenty-five million dollars a year, so that was a great, great. Bought Torbrick wine in and out of that, as a Which is profit. that's
2: a great drop of wine. Though. I agree. <laughs> that's fabulous.
3: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we lost the license on on on, on Bridge Climb because somebody came in and offered uh, offered much more money than we were prepared to pay similar sort of thing with Torbrek Uh, somebody came along and offered us a price and one of the things is when do you you decide to buy or sell and it would largely if somebody can offer you money that's greater than what you can realistically anticipate you're going to make on your own because they want to buy it which in the case of both Bridge Climb and Torbrek was the case then you let it go and uh, so one of the principles are you got to there are a lot of opportunities out there don't fall in love with a deal that kind of impacts on your assessment and a lot of people do that they do fall in love and they can, they just cannot make a, a reasonable decision as to whether you hold or whether you come and go you know, Kenny Rogers' song. You know, you got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. Is a principle. So true, and it really yeah.
2: comes back to that core philosophy that you just said, which is focus, focus, focus.
3: Particularly, particularly when you're in a startup business, because you know, rule one in business is stay in business, don't go broke. And uh, you know, as I say, when you're trying to grow and expand a business and making lots of mistakes, which we did in our core business uh by expanding too fast geographic started in perth next thing you know two years later we're in adelaide then we go to brisbane should not do that you know you should focus get get a critical mass and then kind of different suppliers so made a lot of mistakes but you're you know as they say if you're focused and concentrating you kind of find your way through the maze yeah
2: And so you've mentioned a couple of your um, investments in the past that you have had a trigger moment where you've had that forced sale upon you. I would love to kind of just understand. Sorry, say that
3: again. Forced sale. Yeah.
2: Not forced sale, but you know, with tour break and the bridge climb, like you said, you know, you can't justify paying yeah. the price of offered the more
1: than it's worth. Yeah, offered
2: off of the premium Correct. price, and you think Correct. let's ta- let's take this valuation. Correct. That's on the tables. Yep. So with all those to date because you're known to hold assets generally yep. right
3: I'm a terrible seller you're yep. a terrible seller <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah so with all those past investments that you have had that sale what's been the most return on investment that you can recall
3: Bridge climate's very good uh, I I think you know our original the best return is our base business yeah you know uh, as I say we started off with three hundred thousand dollars and you know today it's worth multiple billions so yeah. I mean and that I think as a as a philosophy one of mine is how do you get a business that produces cash and uh what I've learned as I say from the 60s to the 90s was get that business functioning so that it is profitable producing cash and in I say start off with the channel 10 investment which gave me the confidence to do other things um you know, then you can when the cash comes out, you can invest in other things rather than what you're on, and, and that's kind of the path we went down. And um, you know, you play. Uh, not everything works, you know. Yeah, yeah, but if the tax man's paying half because you can write off a loss, you know, it kind of makes it makes it makes it makes it a little easier. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: And so, in those moments when you've had the sale. How often typically will you sit on cash waiting for deals to come to you? Because I imagine you get presented, like you said, your 25-year-old self walking through this office door. How often do you get pitched deals?
3: Lots, lots, yeah. And one of your earlier questions is, do you have a team? So at this stage of my elevated uh, age, the um, people present things and uh, uh, we have a system in which you say, okay, our primary focus is – where can you get into a business that has some synergy with what we're already doing? You know, what if we can get into something that has some benefits to the existing? How do you make two plus two equal five or six if there's some synergies? So that's kind of that's kind of the first kind of hoop to get through. So it's
2: not a value add from your perspective. It's more of Let's try and integrate into the model you've already. Yeah,
3: that, that that's not that's not the exclusive. As yeah. I say, that to me is kind of that's the uh, primary benefit. If you can take invest in something um, that makes your existing investments better, then that, that that helps. Then the second thing is, can we understand it? You know, can, is is this something that that we understand the basics of uh, why this business works? What can we add to it? What are the the fundamentals here that, that may, will make it a better investment. So that's that's kind of the second rung is, you know, and I've been around long enough for the dot-com era. And, you know, now we see the crypto <laughs> currency. Crash, areas, that's called cool, a crypto a crash. Yes, of, you know, the philosophy for a lot of people was the greater fool theory. You know, I may not understand this, but I, if I can get in this and get out at a higher profit, then I'll get, I don't really understand it, but you know, is this and so you're trying to avoid that sort of trap that uh so you got to understand the principle is you got to understand the basics of, of of what you're getting into and as i say and we you know uh, we have some financial people that help us go through the various hoops and you know um not everything works uh you have to accept that in the investment game You know, failure is a is 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 a fact of life, but I think you develop an attitude that says failure is a learning experience. It's not a death blow. You know, uh, it's how do you how do you learn from something, and you know, and maybe come back, have another go at it. You know, or maybe maybe you buy more of it. You know, uh, to kind of help, but yeah you know, I think it's a, I think that's an important philosophy and not only in investment but also in life that um, failure is should not be a dehabilitating factor it should be a learning experience that makes you stronger to be able to you know be resilient to keep fighting get up off the canvas you know keep and uh, keep a resilience and be in a position whereby we can learn from this and either kill it? Or, you know, as they say, go on and and try and understand why it didn't work. But what can we do to kind of learn from this?
1: Absolutely. Uh, And that's what we say to a lot of our listeners, that, um, you know, you need to invest in companies that you know, there's no point investing in a business that you don't understand. And when you know the business, you're more likely to hold through the tough times as well, I believe. Um, Now let's pivot to Hungry Jacks. So Hungry Jacks takes on McDonald's. How did you approach such a big competitor?
3: Well, uh, interesting. In 1970, we had um, uh, pri- we spent a year in Sydney, and then we moved to Perth. In 19, you know, I guess, got here in '69. Uh, spent a year in Sydney. Opened a little shop on George Street called Burger Baron.
1: Burger Baron. Burger I like Baron.
3: that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we were we were negotiating with McDonald's to become a McDonald's franchisee and they said we'll give you a franchise for one if you're really good, we'll give you two stores and then maybe three if you're really lucky." We said, no no, we're looking for something for the for the whole country uh, so we um, we were negotiating the second biggest hamburger chain in the U.S., which is like the the hamburger business is the dominant sector in the fast food business. So, really successful in the chicken business, right place, right time. You know, doing really well. What else can we get into? Hamburgers. So, the McDonald's were the kind of the market leader, but the second place was Burger King in the U.S. So, we approached them and we did a deal in which we were going to do a joint venture. In and we're going to start in Sydney, and I went out and bought two pieces of property: one at San and one at Yaguna. And, this, and then I got a phone call one day saying from the big American company, which is a company called Pillsbury, which owned Burger King, saying, we cannot proceed because we, you know one of the we, they got into Canada, didn't do as well as they thought, so the Burger King board was told that they can't expand internationally. So meanwhile, I bought these properties, which we're going to do a joint venture on. So um, what do I do? So I sell them to McDonald's, who, were, who at the same time were trying to come into this market and uh – so, the first three McDonald's stores in Australia were compliments of us, you know, really? that the, the helped help them get started. So, I retreat. I moved to I moved to Western Australia at this stage where we had this KFC business. And you say, a little strange, you're living in Sydney, starting a business in Perth. But on the map, when you look at it, it's not that far away, you know. But but in those days, it was like, a, you had to fly Sydney, Adelaide, Adelaide, Perth. You know, so it was like a five-hour kind of trip away. So, I move. We're going to retreat. We'll, we'll establish ourselves in Perth where the KFC business is. So the first Hungry Jacks store opened in 1971, 50-plus years ago. And uh, we couldn't use the name Burger King because somebody else owned it and was operating under under that name, so we had to come up with another name, and Hungry Jacks was chosen and built one store or two. And today we have a business of four and a half. 450 outlets and it does 1.5 billion in revenue and it's quite a successful business and we we invest back into that business probably 60 or 70 million dollars a year opening new outlets renovating what we got and trying to you know be competitive and we're competing as entrepreneurs family business with these multinational businesses that you know, probably make more in profit than our total sales are, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. So, uh, but you know, one of the one of the things that you learn there's a Kohl's and there's a woolies, you know. So, if, I mean, if you can be a if you can be a competitor uh, and try and do things right as to what customers are looking for, have a motivated management team, you can be competitive. So, you don't just being big doesn't necessarily mean that that you should be turning and, and shying away from something. So that that's the story.
1: Absolutely. I wonder if that Old Burger King is still around.
3: No, we bought the name. We oh, yeah. bought the name as, as a guy in Adelaide, an American guy who had opened up, you know, half a dozen stores in Adelaide and Perth, which is where we were starting. So we ended up buying the name from from him, and he had and we, and we bought a couple of the pieces of property that he owned and converted those to Hungry Jacks. Oh,
1: how interesting! Yeah. So I guess you're also an investor in V2 Foods, so the yeah. plant-based meat company. Yeah. And I believe you invested early stage, early round. So I guess what's your long-term thinking here? How do you see the alternative meat space growing? Uh,
3: Just to give you a little story on that, Um, there's two major companies in the US which are in this plant-based meat, one's called Impossible and one's called Beyond, public companies. And... um, uh, you know, as you travel, you, 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 your antennas up, and I was aware that that this kind of plant-based meat was was becoming a, a, a product which caught people's attention. So we have a business which is um, in the meat processing business. It's not an abattoir. We buy boxes of beef turned into hamburger patties and portion control pizza toppings and things like that. We have a plant in. Brisbane, and a plant in New, Ze- New Zealand, and so I wrote a letter to the president of Impossible, which is kind of saying we're in this business, we we can do, we you know, can we become your local manufacturing agent for Australia and even Asia because we 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 already send product to twenty seven different countries of, of the of these meat, but so anyway, I did not get an answer, no reply. So not long after, I'd been kind of. Uh, not responded to uh, I had um, lunch and there was a member from CSIRO and he's I he said look I'm interested in this plant-based meat business what, what, what do we do to uh, you know get into it and he said look uh, CSIRO has got 2,700 PhDs we can make anything that that, that, that that you want so anyway we put up a million dollars CSI, or open up, a million and and we're in business. And um, that business went through uh, an establishment stage of um, hiring people and built a facility in Wadanga and got into the major supermarkets and things like this. I think the reality is that um, you know um, the the entire meat business is is a, is a huge industry. And this kind of when it as it got started, everybody thought this was going to be a revolution that be, you know people would be giving away meat for you know health reasons and uh save the planet and all those various things that went with it. But changing people's eating habits is not easy, and I think the realization has come from not only for us but kind of the whole alternate meat sort of industry that this is going to be a longer term. I I I think. Uh, we have not lost confidence that this will continue to uh, grow. Uh, V2 went in and got, we saw, you know, I think we have, we're kind of, we're the major player in Australia today in this category. Uh, not as big as what the original expectations were, but, but it is growing and will continue to grow. And our ambition was to get into Asia and uh, into China, but with COVID and all these other things that have gone on the last couple of years, that's taken longer and slower than what, but we haven't given up that that's kind of where the future will be. Because you know the population and things like this, and so that's that's the the growth plan. We've been successful in raising money from uh, outside investors. So the business is, you know, I think it's raised two hundred million dollars uh, in um, the time since it's been going three or four years. So the expectations are there, but it, this is going to be a, a longer term investment. It will not be a revolution, which oh, all of a sudden people will kill the cow and, and you know, <laughs> So it'll continue, but it's going to take longer than what I think everybody thought. Originally thought. Well,
1: I guess that's kind of a good first tip, right? To kind of look at plant-based meat um, into the future, but have to stay invested for the long term. Now, in a moment, we're going to hear about the Domino's journey and Jack's thoughts about the quick service fast food industry. He's also going to share with us some very interesting investable ideas that he's lacking at the moment and why. So,
2: everybody, stay tuned. You don't want to miss these investable ideas. Before we do all of that and hear Jack's insights, we're just going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors.
3: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: And we're back. So after Hungry Jacks, another one of your successful investments in the food business was Domino's. So that's another investment that you've been, you know, invested really since the early stages. And I know, you know, you talked about just then you can see the future that it's going to take longer with the alternative meat space. But I would just love to know, you know, thirty years ago when you did make the decision to go into Domino's, did you think or realize at the time how big it would be today, DMP?
3: well um the story on Domino's was in the fast food business today 70 percent of the business is through the drive-through arm out the window you know and things like that which is convenience people don't want to get out of the car it's easier Got the kids in the back seat and uh, i saw convenience being a, a factor but what's more convenient than that is somebody ringing your doorbell and presenting it home delivered and um so I I, I I developed an interest in trying to understand this. So in 1986, I bought 50% of a business based in Brisbane called Silvio's dial of Business. I don't know if you were born then or not, but you'd, you'd understand <laughs> No, this. but
2: I know the story of Silvio. You know the story. It's a great
3: story. And um, that was kind of the launching pad of my interest in the pizza business and... Through the uh, through the remainder of the 80s and into the 90s, it was a struggle. Um, lots of reasons probably why we should have said, this is too hard. Uh, but we kind of persevered. Domino's built maybe 50, 60 stores. Um, but it was a real struggle. And meanwhile, Domino's, the U.S. company, had come into Sydney and Brisbane And had opened their own business, but had gone broke three times with three different franchise groups. So we're so smart, we think we can buy two failing, struggling businesses and put them together and have a success, which is somewhat naive and probably, you know, mission impossible. But we did because we thought, okay, well, where we're going doesn't look that great. Maybe if we're part of an international brand, that may carry some some. And also, there, you know, can we get some synergies by instead of having, you know, we'll probably grow to, we'll have double the number of stores because they had some stores, we had some stores, we'll put them together, maybe some synergies. But you know, almost mission impossible. But we did it. Nineteen ninety two, that happened. So six years after we'd bought in originally, that business evolved through the nineties. There was a guy um, by the name of Don May, who is a school teacher, part time delivery guy, who was hired as a, as a store manager. And um, during this, was in the late 90s, came to Sydney again, struggle, struggle, struggle. Newcastle, you know, struggle, struggle, struggle. And um, he, he um, left the employment of the company to become a franchisee in Brisbane, and his sales were double what the company stores were. And so I said to the management at that stage of the game, how come he can do this? Yeah, and what's he we, doing yeah, different? Yeah, what's he, what's he <laughs> doing giving out different? free
2: pieces or what? <laughs> Correct,
3: 100% right. And um, so we made a management change, Don came in, he brought some other franchisees in that we that we uh, that were also kind of struggling and they came in as as kind of partners into into the business and they had a management team this is this is 2001 this happened and um, we built the, uh, the you know they they came in and we had it had a changeover by 2005 the company went public under this new leadership Grant Burke Kind of came in, went and went to France, and you know uh, a few years later. But that management team, the company went public in two thousand and five at two dollars and twenty cents a share, and you know the rest kind of is history. You know, it's got a market value today almost six billion dollars on um, on kind of the the growth company, um, the first. Um, First investment that that they made was in when they b- bought a, a business in, in in France from the U.S. company, Netherlands and, and and France, bought Japan, bought at a later stage Germany, and today that business has thirty five hundred outlets. Very recently, in the last month, uh, bought three hundred stores in Malaysia um Cambodia and Singapore and it is an international company that continues to grow and has a fantastic future uh, basically um built the it's a franchising company and the uh how do you then one of the one of the, the one of the essentials of the business is and a challenge is how do you make money within the company i.e. the listed dominoes company but at the same time how do you allow the franchisees also to be profitable so that's a challenge that all franchise companies have and uh, so they've gone in and and um, you know the business the business kind of has covid was an interesting period you know in which
2: well, COVID was great for delivery. Right? I'm just
3: going to say it, it, that was a positive because you know people um, again drive through restaurants and delivery was a was a plus, and uh, that the, the, in the case of down the stock probably got overvalued. Uh,
2: uh, Did you think it at the time as well? Take some profits at hundred sixty dollars. Well, <laughs>
3: uh, you don't know it. I mean, the reality is, you know, yes. I mean, uh, the the, yes, the, growth, I so. <laughs> the growth, the growth, the growth uh, was in in the stock price, and that that's one of the issues. Is the fact you know um, you know some major institutions wanted to get a position, and in order to get a position, they took the stock price up, and uh, you know you kind of you go for the ride, but. We were looking at, and I think this is kind of one of the principles, we're looking at the long-term, what can this business become? So we didn't sell any shares. And that's one of the, I think one of the one of the issues with public companies is the fact of how do you get a longer-term for vision rather than the short-term? And yeah. if you take a longer-term vision, and my most successful investments have been Where we've persevered, stayed with it, and if you think the fundamentals of the business are right. In the case of the Hungry Jacks business, in the case of the Domino's business, which are our primary, you know, I'm the chairman of Domino's and the largest shareholder. I own 26-odd percent of the company. And um, to me, if you're not buying or selling, it's somewhat academic what the share price is, as long as the fundamentals of the business are right. And so, you know, as you say, yes, yes. It was interesting to see the valuation get increased, but doesn't really matter unless you're a seller. Yeah. So as I say, so it's we we've ridden that up down, and I think that the really uh, from
1: two dollars, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. The nice little dividend (laughs) along the way. That's right. I think um, what's quite interesting is, like, as a young girl, I grew up with Pizza Hut, right, and now it's like Pizza Hut who. Yeah. Really, yeah. Um, you've kind of taken over. Uh, there's probably not as many Pizza Hut stores or oh, Eagle Boys, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, they're gone. They're all gone. Yeah, the Pizza Hut. It's an interesting thing. They're owned by the same company that owns the KFC business and uh, Taco Bell. But they were somewhat schizophrenic in that your days as a as, as a young lady. They were a sit down restaurant. And then they found that the economics with the dominoes of home delivery, you know, kind of small units, not a restaurant, but a home, they couldn't compete with that on a price point of view. But meanwhile, you got all these restaurants, and the economics of home delivery are, are also selling pizza are so different that they went through this whole sort of who and what are we? And as a, as a result of that, they struggled. And as they say, they've gone, they've gone from a dominant major player to a company today that you know, has kind of struggled. Mm.
1: Cause yeah. Absolutely. Because I remember as a young girl going into Pizza Hut, it was basically all you can eat. Yeah. And I was thinking, how are they going to make money when right. families just keep going back and back yeah. for more pasta, pizza, the dessert? Like, it's impossible. And I guess that kind of leads to our you know our next question, Um you know, you've seen one of the major trends with quick service restaurants has been the aggregators, such as Deliveroo, which recently went out of business. And I guess that's probably a good thing for Domino's because those drivers can potentially work for Domino's. But what is your take on this trend and the future of this platform?
3: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the, um, Uber is the, is the big gorilla. Uh, they're the, they're the dominant player. And but the whole industry has been built on venture capital equity, absorbing the losses that these companies have incurred while they're getting established. And the question is, when does the transition take place? Now, Australia has been probably better than, than a lot of the other markets. But in whole, they've, the, the industry, the aggregator industry has, has continued to lose money in total and delivery being case in point. So, how long will the venture capital financial backers of these companies continue to support a company that doesn't make money? And one of two things will happen: either they put the prices up, or they'll find you know they'll find another way of being able to you know to make money. Uh, in the case of Uber, it was ride sharing, then kind of you know the, the food delivery kind of came as a, as, a, as a secondary aspect, which I think has helped them. But it, it, it is an interesting scenario, particularly here in Australia, whereby um, the the Domino's business has employees who do the delivery. In, in all the cases, they don't use the aggregator. Yeah. And as a result of that, um, it'll come, you know, they, they have the, you have to pay the superannuation and all the things that go with having a sick pay, everything that goes with that. But you know you have control over the aspects you know you see some of these delivery people that come in with motorcycle helmets on and you know kind of you know yeah. raggy kind it's of cold. look exactly <laughs> so the domino's philosophy has been we want to maintain as i said Quality. they will take orders from the aggregator but they do their own delivery and uh, and i think you know with time um that the industry will either through union power of saying you know the gig environment is not doesn't meet the standards of what the labor laws are, are, are seeking so that's a that's a risk that they have to run so they they're going to have to figure out how do how do, how do you how do you make money out of this beyond having a shareholder group who accept the losses that have been incurred in getting, getting established. So that, that's an interesting sort of scenario that none of us really know kind of where this is going to go. But they've got a couple icebergs that are floating out there. One, the labor laws and the gig society as to how, how you make that work and what's required to make these businesses go and become profitable. Against that is the dominoes in, in that we, dominoes executes themselves And as a result of that, uh, they get into a position whereby they don't have this labor law problem, uh, but they got to make it. They got to be more efficient in being able to do the deliveries, and you control the the image of you know when somebody's delivering something to you that you're going to put in your mouth, and they don't look too savory.
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, how do you how do we
3: repeat customer? How do we deal with that? And if you can control that uniform boom 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 then you got a better chance so the jury's out and i don't think any of us can say with any degree of accuracy who's going to be the where, winner where that's going to go
1: because you do know with dominoes that it's going to get you fast yeah. and it's going to be high quality it's still going to be warm so yeah i think that's definitely a plus and way of the future and maybe others will follow suit yeah.
3: It's interesting as Domino's opens more and more uh, stores into the market, one, one of the things that in the early stages uh, <clears throat> you'd get an order. Unfortunately, it's a 30 minute drive to get there and uh, then another thirty minutes to get back to the store and things are so not very productive. so delivery areas have shrunk so that uh, you know you have to, to, to get the product's going to be hotter, fresher. All those things, but you get more productivity out of the people. So, how do you get three or four orders in an hour, and that makes it more productive and cost efficient? So, this whole area is is in a state of you know trying to figure out where where it's going to end up.
2: And not only that, but I recall you know a lot of experimentation and innovation on the delivery box itself, on the back of the moped or the car or whatever. So. You know, as you said, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in business and you're always learning and it's it comes back to focus, focus, focus. And tweaking it, right?
3: So, the, so the, you know, the Domino's people say this is the age of delivery. Morgan Stanley in the USA, 50% of the food service business by 2035 or something will be home delivered, you know, because of convenience. Uh, but how this gets sorted out productivity will be the determinant and how do you do it efficiently and you know there have been drones all kinds of various things that people are playing with but nobody at the end of the day how do we get it to the customer in the most cost effective way as I say shrinking the delivery areas uh, helps because you know how do we get four deliveries in an hour That, that, that that's a challenge and used to be as I say half-hour driveway you don't you don't accept we'll open another store and so kind of how do you get the store development taking place
1: So those are really interesting comments to end our first part, that it's estimated that soon about 50% of the food businesses by 2035 will actually be by home delivery. So DMP is actually very well placed to capture this trend, you know, with productivity and efficiency and whoever focuses really the best on getting the product to the customer will ultimately win this race.
2: Well, that's a wrap guys to part one with our sit down and exclusive interview with Mr. Jack Cowan. What an honor to hear a firsthand account of how Jack over the decades has created such a legacy and empire, not only in the food industry, but also he's had his hands in many different businesses, like you heard about the wine, bridge climb, TV, and the advertising gig. For me, one of his tips in business, which really resonated, was when he was talking about selling at the right time. You know, when someone offers you more money than what you can pay for today, take it. As he was saying, don't fall in love with a deal. Emotions can cloud your own judgment. And that's what Felicia and I always say. Don't fall in love with a stock. Don't be afraid to take capital and profits off the table because you got to know when to hold them and when to fold them.
1: We hope you liked that exclusive interview with Jack Cowan. Next time, we're going to be bringing you part two in which Jack discusses a few of his latest investments, the reasons why he's an investor in Queens Road Capital. Plus, you really don't want to miss this conversation as we get to hear Jack's golden rules in business.
2: Before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at shrine Partners, as always, our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice. You should go out and seek your own professional advice before you you make any of your investment decisions.
1: And make sure you follow us on at Talk Money to Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five star review on Apple podcast or Spotify. And remember, if you've got any questions or you want to ask us anything, you can contact us at tmtm at equitymates.com. We'll be back next week. Until next time, stay tuned for part two.
0: Talk Money To Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money To Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website, where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander
3: people today. Planning for your next trip?